0: Digital 410 Productions proudly presents What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast with your host, Don Abernathy.
1: What's going on, everybody? It's the What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. I am your host, Don Abernathy. This episode is going to be a little different than what we normally do here at the What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast because usually I have a guest on the phone or via Skype or via Facebook live stream or via Carrier Pigeon. But uh, for the third time in the history of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, we have a guest here in studio, a gentleman I met last weekend. Was it last weekend? Last weekend at the Lakeland, Georgia World War II weekend, second annual. We'll cover that a little bit because I know we had Jeremy on a while back talking about that event, so we'll give you a little update on that. But joining us live from the At Computer Studio, Mr. Eric Hauser. Eric, how you doing?
0: Doing all right, man. This is a great day. Jeff fun today? I did.
1: First and foremost, thank you for driving all the way out here from Tampa, Florida.
0: Yeah, man, no problem.
1: Just uh just get on that microphone, make love to it, and speak up a little bit, and we'll be good to go.
0: Okay. This yeah. is the Jocko Willink podcast.
1: <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Shout out to Jocko Willink, man. <laughs> and so Jeremy drove Jeremy. <laughs> I was just talking about Jeremy, Georgia. Eric drove down here from Tampa to do a podcast because, well, I failed you guys miserably. I talked about this on the Waterman D train show, but we'll talk about a little bit here because, you know, this is a little different episode and we're going to have a little more fun with it. So as you guys know, I drove up to Lakeland, Georgia about a weekend ago to do the second annual World War II weekend in Lakeland, Georgia. And that's where I met Eric. And as I always do, I gathered up the at computers, mobile studio. I grabbed the laptop. I grabbed the mixing board. I grabbed everything and I went and I drove to Georgia. Met Eric. We had a good time. Yes. We did the uh
0: four and a half hour, eight mile tactical, which was awesome. It was actually very fun. It was my first it's actually my sixteenth anniversary as a World War II reenactor, and a lot of the older veterans and civilian reenactors alike were actually I guess my mentors when I first started back in uh sixteen years ago. Yeah, it's my sweet sixteen. It's my sixteenth year anniversary and I gotta say, you know, a lot of people have said some tongue-in-cheek things about about Florida reenacting and southern reenacting but it's 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 gotten a lot better man
1: i don't know the Florida reenactors we get a little bit of shit on we get flack especially on farb fest which i hate going on um the farb fest you know the farb the farb websites really annoy me because half those cats and i know some of those cats none of those fools say anything at an event They're just internet tough guys. Of course. They won't say anything to you. They won't take you aside and say, hey, man, let's work on your impression. None of that. They just take pictures of you and then publicly shame you on Facebook.
0: Yeah, the big thing with me is, um, you ever seen Big Lebowski? Yep. So I was in the military and I'm going through some stuff. A lot of us are. Uh, My advice to veterans, whether you're getting into the reenacting hobby or not, or just trying to live your life and transition out of your military service, if you're my age, try to live your life more like the dude, and less like Walter Sobchak, and you won't end up like Donnie. The dude of vibes.
1: Damn it, Donnie, we're having an adult conversation over here. You're out of your element, Donnie. And so I met Eric. And Phone's we, ringing, dude. And we got along fine, and so I said, yeah, hey, man. Eric, after the event, you did military. <laughs> You've been doing this a long time. Yeah. I want to get an interview with you. We'll we'll bust it out real quick. We'll do it for the USO show.
0: Yeah, I got his bed. I got his bed set up. There was an extra bed in the bunk. I, now here's I, the funny I took thing. one of my uh, took one of my sleeping bag covers and I was like, "This is his bed. This is the lieutenant's bed."
1: I'm not trying to toot my own horn here, but this really happened. So I met Eric first time I met
0: him, mm-hmm. and you and
1: I were talking, And we'll get into this a little bit later. Um, we were talking about maybe starting an 82nd Airborne impression. Yeah. And you're all about research totally and one of the things you said to me is hey man how are you, how do you feel about research how do you go about research and impression i said well you know funny interestingly enough that's one of the things we cover on my podcast oh, okay to which you said oh you're that guy from that podcast yeah
0: dude i looked it up i was like oh it's don abernathy and so
1: i gave you a sticker and you're like oh you are that guy from the podcast
0: i was really excited man because i saw your I, like my friends and I, when I was in the army, we had a podcast to kind of deal with our stuff from our deployments. It was called uh, "The Name Is at the End" a podcast and variety show. So, like, and being who I am with my background in the military as a communicator and a, a, a basically a propaganda guy, I'm all about radio, man. And you know, I've 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 actually been interested in in the science of radio and the entertainment, the art of radio since I was a child up in Tampa Bay. There is a, a enterprise village for kids. Ever since literally elementary school, I've always been obsessed with radio DJs and being able to just use your voice to talk to people.
1: And so I am. Here I am. I, I just met a cat who listens to my podcast. He knows who I am. Yeah. And he's excited because I asked him to do an interview. Yeah, yeah. And so he goes and he stakes out a place because we need power. Now, I do have an inverter. I have done uh, interviews from my truck. It works, but, you know, you got to have the engine running. There's engine noise. But anyhow, Eric goes out. He camps out of place. He finds me yep, power. Yep.
0: As line he, producer. I was a line producer.
1: As you said, he found me a, a place to set up. And so we got in this bunk room and there's another reenactor I've never met before
0: and his wife. Nathan. Another, another Operation Enduring Freedom Veteran. Yeah. So
1: Nathan and his wife Rosie are sitting on the bed. They're watching me. And I'm unpacking. I'm sitting on my laptop. I'm plugging up my mixing board. I'm getting all my power out. And I said, Hmm. Hold on, Eric. Let me go get my microphones out of my truck.
0: Let me get to the glove
1: box. The glove
0: box? I mean, let me get to the back seat. <laughs> so I go
1: downstairs and I think, well, Where the hell are my microphones? Because Uh. thanks to you guys and thanks to those of the uh, OG5 who sign up for Patreon, because of you guys, we have a nice studio here now. I got a nice Mackie mixing board. We got nice AKG microphones. And so what I've done is I've relegated the old mixing board and old studio equipment to be my mobile studio so that I don't have to tear up this nice equipment. But in the past, whenever I would travel, I would just put the microphones in a Crown Royal bag and put it in my book bag. Mm
0: but now i have these nice travel what cases. what happened was
1: so these akc microphones came with these nice roadie microphone cases so now i put the old microphones in there so they don't get beat up yeah well the problem is i didn't know if i was going to go to this event because of my work schedule and it wasn't until friday at noon that i got cleared to go and so luckily i packed up all my stuff the night before and so i'm in here scrambling getting this net and, and everything long story short ladies and gentlemen just met a guy was excited to find out that i'm the guy from the podcast i'm going to interview him
0: hey i'm set- i just met you and this is crazy but i have bad news <laughs> and so <laughs>
1: i go up there and i said eric I buddy f- forgot my microphone's 350 miles away
0: dang it that's what i said just and like here's that. the worst in the, part in that exact tone dang it so i start
1: packing up my stuff and nathaniel and his wife rosie look at me and say are you the guy from the World War II-based podcast? (laughs) We just started listening to your show, and it's fantastic.
0: But you're a terrible radio producer.
1: (laughs) Which I did professionally for five and a half years. So how embarrassing for me, the guy who's trying to get his podcast out there, who tried to put on the front that I'm a professional operation, you know, here at Digital 410 Productions, and I got two people, three people I've never met before, who just happened to listen to my podcast, and I can't do a podcast because I forgot the main key ingredient. It's one thing if you forget an extension cord or a power strip, which, by the way, I had all that stuff packed in my nice demo ranch. For those of you who watch demo ranch on YouTube, I got his book bag. Everything fits in there fine. Laptop fits in there. Mixing board, everything. No microphones. So I said to Eric, Eric, this is embarrassing.
0: And I can't yell 350 miles. Do you want to do a phone interview? And I was like, Nah. Nay. Nah, dog. I wanna drive.
1: Eric's like, nay, I do know I I said we can do it over your phone. And you what'd you say to me about your phone? I, I don't have a phone. I got
0: one of those phones, man.
1: How does a thirty one year old in twenty twenty operate without a cell phone? Yes. You you drove from Tampa down to the confusing city of Cape Coral with no GPS, no Google Maps,
0: no no ways. I channel a lot of the skills that I learned. Um in the military as a paratrooper and, and i really just i feel like my life is a lot easier if i just uh really literally just pull out a world atlas with some maps and use that as a, a topographical map it's not that hard and it really it helps you learn how to do terrain association again you know it's actually a really good skill set if you're just an american and you want to be able to land navigate without having to use some device that you might not always have you know
1: well, you were saying earlier that this is your 16th year being a World War II reenactor Correct. and living historian. Correct. But you took some time off because you were active duty.
0: Yeah, the hobby became a job, and then um, some people who know me, they actually, a couple of people actually ran into me at the event, and they had not seen me in over three and a half years, and uh, they were actually really worried about me. A lot of my friends are actually really worried about me. I've had a real rough time with the VA, um, but after three and a half years, I had a pretty good breakthrough, and um, I have a lot more extra time now, and I'm going to try to use some of my... Uh, newly earned resources to put it right back into America and try to help this hobby get even bigger. A lot of it right now is for um, myself for healing. A lot of it's for, just to be honest, uh, veteran suicide prevention. A lot of vets, you know, come out to these events now and they might know a guy who might know a guy who might need this in their life, you know, and um, pending any, like, safety stuff, get them out there. They don't even have to carry a firearm at all. They can be a medic, whatever you know. So I'm trying to make sure that as many of our guys that are currently in the hobby that have some military background can be squared away. And part of that's like the land nav stuff, just leading by example, you know.
1: Well, one of the things I've always been very clear about is the fact that I have never served, and that um, you know, I once again I've never served. I don't want to risk making it sound like that I have, but I do know that a lot of cats who do the reenacting, they are ex service personnel right and let me ask you from someone who served seven years i think you're saying
0: yeah i I served in the united states army um two different military occupational specialties the first half of my career was as a a radio operator maintainer and then uh, at the strategic level and then after that i um i went to fort bragg and uh, i changed my job i was a paratrooper um on smoke bomb hill and um did stuff at Fort Bragg and, and it was very interesting. And, um, t- total time on active duty was seven and a half years. And, um, my delayed entry, the, while I was actually earning my, uh, my high school diploma, um, counted toward my reserve time. So I think I did about eight years and one week total.
1: Now, is there something about reenacting, um, whether it's the uniform, the hanging out with a bunch of dudes on the weekend, um, is there something about reenacting that provides something to you? Obviously, it's nowhere near being in the real military, but clearly, is it just the history? Is there something physical about going out and doing it? What is it about reenacting that a lot of vets are drawn to? Is there something that helps you find something that you're missing, or is it just the history side?
0: I think, um, you know, there's approximately 9 million people utilizing the VA healthcare system every single year. So there's millions of veterans now. This this growing, you know, warrior class in our country after this long war we've been in for so long, you know, God bless them. The ones that get into reenacting, I think it's I think it's a personal thing, but overall across the board, a lot of it's just the brotherhood. Um if you're a guy like me and you're trying to kind of put some of that behind yourself, it, it takes time. It it gives you an excuse to kind of open up your back pocket or your hip pocket again and kind of play you know, play army again for, for a weekend and it, and it, and, it, and it's for good, you know, because you're teaching other people that have never actually experienced warfare, what your war might've been like. And then whatever traumas you may have had, you know, no matter what you're going through, you're not the only one, you can go back into this research and maybe even talk to the world war two veterans. Cause they're still alive. And, and you realize, wow, like in a lot of ways, his war was worse than mine, but Believe it or not, I've actually had guys from Easy Company 506 tell me right before I deployed. I went to the show of shows in 2011. I actually had real guys from Easy Company 506 talk to me. Um, I believe Bill Garnier was not there at that time, but a couple. I think like Earl One Lung McClung was there. Um, I can't remember the other guy's name, but it was P- uh, Pee Wee Martin was there, yep. and and they all said to me, they were like, "Man, my hat is off to you, you veterans of all the services right now, all you service members," because, and I. Uh, I, you know, I, I'm i paraphrasing here, but one of the guys in the Band of Brothers, straight up, Easy Company 506, said to me, you know, you young paratroopers, man, all you service members, you guys, you guys, man, you guys got a hard, you know, back in my day, sure, we killed a bunch of Nazis, you know, we killed a bunch of Japs, but at least they were wearing uniforms. The war we're in now, man, you know, it's it's a whole new world, and even World War II veterans, into their dying days, they actually, they really emote a level of fear for us, even though it seems like our war is possibly easier or less bloody, even world war two veterans. They, you know, they, they vibe on that. So that to answer your question, that all that stuff, all that, those, those bonding and that connection, you meet these veterans and you make that eye contact and you realize, man, it's like, war doesn't really change, man. You know? Well,
1: I guess, you know, thinking about it, I think it probably started a little bit during Vietnam, but prior to that, it may sound a little weird to people who don't do the research or don't know, have the knowledge, but there is always kind of a decorum about war. Yeah. You wear your uniform so we know who you are. Mm-hmm. We'll wear our uniform so you know who we are. Obviously, back in the day, they would stand out on a football field and shoot at each other, which made no, no sense. Yeah. But the psychological impact that has to have on a soldier who you don't know who your effing enemy is.
0: So, yeah, my, my friend's uh, father, John, uh, he was in the Korean War, and I think I think that really started to become a, a publicly known thing about just the brutality of war, the, how primitive we're going. We're kind of going backwards in our war. Yeah. Uh, the communist troops. I, I'm, I'm trying to work on a, a book actually about this. Yeah, the
1: Koreans, the Chinese, there's the way so that, many different
0: people. The way that they would handle their business is they would they would be very old school and primitive in how they would have a four man front and a hundred man you know file behind them you know, of 400 guys and a, and a battalion, of Chinaman, and they would push entire villages of people in front of them. And unfortunately, you know, men like John had to, had to do some things to make sure that they could survive. And, uh, that, I don't know that that was as much of a thing in World War II, except for maybe, uh, Japan, that, or I was going to say the Russians. Yeah. Um, and this is, and again, you and I are historians so for the people that listen out there. Amateur at best. At best. We're, um, we're looking at this more from a, a, a completely, what would you call it? Like impersonal aspect because the human condition, it doesn't matter what these guys look like racially or age or the costumes that are wearing War is crazy, man. Uh, but the psychological effect I think has changed a lot because of the lack of uniformity in a lot of the enemies that America is now facing. You know, it was, it was like you said, uh, there was a gentlemanliness to it. The SS were actually pretty infamous because they would try to be way too knightly and noble after they just got done, like
1: doing the world's most worst, positive, <laughs> and the craziest yeah. sh- shit <laughs> you can even think of. Yeah,
0: a lot of the, a lot of the World War II vets would, would, um, when they would have a new unit come in to like, we call it relief in place now, or like rip out, they would come in and they would, they would say, hey, buddy, all right, listen, here's the deal because you know everyone's from Brooklyn. What's back the then. dope? Yeah, listen, hey, buddy, welcome to the potty. Uh, here's the deal. Uh, the Jerry's over there. You they sound
1: more like you're from 1920s. Yeah. See. Hey, where'd you hide their dough, rabbit? Yeah.
0: See. Yeah. See. So, we so got anyhow, to, the straight dope. So yeah, the the psychological thing, man. Like they they would act gentlemanly even after committing absolute genocide. And and, and guys, you guys, know, Americans would tell their wives and tell their comrades, like you know, don't. These guys are gonna act like they didn't do anything wrong. But even back then.
1: But there was a rule to war. Correct.
0: So, until they got caught. Or ran out of ammo, there was an ability to basically mass industrial slaughter of people in World War II, which is Just like sad. But now...
1: It was considered dirty pool to shoot a medic.
0: Right. Whereas uh, most now- medics
1: didn't carry firearms except for those who were corpsmen in the Navy fighting in the PTO because the Japanese were synonymous for going after the medics because they knew you take out a medic, not only are you taking out a life, but you're potentially taking out a whole platoon. Right you're taking out the source that's going to rehabilitate people and save lives. It's,
0: yeah. And so the, our, ja- the,
1: um, uh, the corpsmen in the Pacific, they all carried sidearms.
0: Yeah. Now our now a lot of our combat medics that they, they're just riflemen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so how yeah, the psychological aspect has changed. The war has actually gotten in my opinion, a lot more complex. Um, anyone that was in my, my, my job can tell you that, uh, psychologically we've had to change whole narratives to fit, the relationships that we're trying to build with these people that were unfortunately killing. Um, and it's very hard to, to create a relationship where you have all this racial and religious and geographic and political and economic struggle. But, but the people around the world don't want to admit that it's like a world war.
1: <laughs> well, and, and, and the thing is <laughs> too to put it in perspective for civilians who haven't seen it in 19, uh, 2019, 2018, The whole fanatical side of just my opinion matters more than yours. And if you
0: don't like it, I'll ruin your life and call the feds on you.
1: Everything here, you know, you got these people who who get offended and so they quote-unquote cancel people. We're in a cancel culture where they're trying to cost people's lives. They call you
0: problematic.
1: So now imagine if you had that same group of people but instead of going on Twitter and getting you fired – they just cut your fucking throat. <laughs> yeah. That's what you're dealing with over there. Yeah. You got people who are strict in their beliefs. Yep. They don't want to hear your side of it. And if you don't believe them, instead of them canceling you and costing your job, they're going to fucking kill you.
0: And then there's the other side of it. Um, They're the average Afghans who live out in the more rural areas. Uh, To kind of put it into a historical perspective, they're like what the pagans were to the Romans. They're just kind of like just out there. And they believe in their own version of God and, they have their own version of, of Islam, and ultimately they really just want to, like, not die that day.
1: <laughs> well, they're like you and I. They're, <laughs> right. like, they they're wanna... like the people on Twitter who don't get caught up in that. Right. But because the people who are part of the culture, they speak the loudest, it seems like they have larger numbers. When, truth be told, they don't, they're just the loudest of what they're doing. Same thing over there. You have more people who just want to be left the fuck alone, yeah. but then you have the group of people who talk the loudest and do the
0: worst shit. One thing I will say, in my own experience of um, my unique perspective, being you know German American and having you know history in my family of of World War II from both sides, the the Germans and the Allies. One thing I do notice is a lot of people in this generation are using the actions of a previous generation to start World War II again with tiki torches and and, and bug spray flamethrowers and.
1: Well, I have said on my other <laughs> podcast multiple times: if you are trying to talk p- policy and politics with me, that's fine. But as soon as you compare anybody to Hitler, I am tuning out.
0: Oh yeah, Poe's because, Law or whatever well, they call it.
1: Well, no, just anytime you bring compare anybody to Hitler, I don't care who it is, I tune out because that just tells me you don't have any real information and any real reason for going. You know. Bitching about the person you're bitching
0: about, Don. You because are you can't
1: compare anybody to Hitler except for maybe ex- Mussolini. Ex- or
0: excuse me. I just want to let you know that I feel dehumanized right now, and I need a safe space. And uh, you're literally a Nazi. Okay.
1: Okay. Well, here's what you can do. Um, <laughs> you just, can you can move that 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 thing there in front of the door and get the hell out of my house. <laughs> just because you're offended doesn't mean you're right. Yeah. And you can have your feelings, and you need to learn how to process them and deal with them. And not to go off on a tangent, but this is kind of a Every bad result starts with a good intention, Mm. and a lot of the stuff we're seeing, these are the cats who grew up in the zero tolerance of bullying in school, Oh man! and so since they were so hardly protected like they were an endangered species, like they were fucking bald eagles or burl owls here in Florida, that their teachers and the administration went so far out of their way to protect them, now that they're adults, they can't handle- conflict they have no conflict resolution skill
0: of any kind um it's it's so bad that grown men who you would think look more masculine than me that they can't even make eye contact when they go to shake your hand
1: they have they
0: don't have thick skin and i don't i don't mean it to say that i hate them or hold it against them i actually just feel like i don't i don't even know what the word would be i just i feel distraught for the future of this country my I don't hold it against any of these people. They don't know any better. No,
1: it's their parents. It's the generation. It's the Disney. Even even their teachers, the Nickelodeons. It's everything that that. Well, even
0: even their parents. I look at it like you know the '90s. People were working, and latchkey kids, and
1: you're looking at one.
0: Right. Both my parents worked full time. My dad
1: worked full time, and then went to school full time. Um and then when he got home, he's always in a bad mood and pissed off. And so by the time mm-hmm. I got to drive and if I came home and his car was off front, I just kept going after school. Yep. I'd wait until he was asleep because he was on edge. The guy was yeah. working twelve hours a day, going to school for five hours, come home and deal with my nonsense.
0: Yeah, one one I will give you a positive here. Uh as um turbulent as my relationship with my father may have been when I was younger, now that I'm a, a grown man, um and I don't want to be like, Oh, the patriarchy, blah blah but really the patriarchy of My life is my father, and uh, now that I'm a 31 year old man, I'll be 32 next month. I kind of, you know, I kind of empathize with my dad. You know, he's real, real angry a lot of the times. But now that I kind of see what's going on, and it has nothing to do, even necessarily with, you know, it's life experience. It's just life, gender, race, none of that. It's just being a man in America.
1: Well, it's amazing how much your life changes when you get to 30. Yeah, Your, your perspective changes, and everybody, everybody, there's a point in their life when you see your parents as. The public sees him. A society sees him.
0: The king of the mountain. Well, no. And well, then when you climb up the mountain, when he's older, you realize, oh, he's just a guy.
1: Well, you see them as your neighbor. See him, like, oh, he's just a dude. He was working hard, to take care of my family. All the yeah. things he did, you know, when I that I held against him as a kid wasn't personal. He was just trying to move along. Mm-hmm. My had, dad.
0: Now that I now that I'm older, I know that my father just wanted a, to have a better life for me than he had when he was my age. My dad actually went into lifelong debt to get us out of the ghetto. like I'm actually from the ghetto. I was uh, I was born and raised there, got out of there when I was like 10 or 11 or whatever, Perm- like fully, we like moved out fully. Yeah, I'm from Greenwood, Dunedin. Um, I'm probably the whitest oh, boy I, I, on, I, on the neighborhood, but my dad moved us out of there. Life I, Lifelong debt, man. I know the flavor
1: of government cheese. I, I started yes, in the 70s with my mom. You yes, know, sir. We did the stamps. Back when food stamps were actually looked like Monopoly money, and they were so large and so bright that the, the guy cutting beef in the back knew that you were poor. Mm-hmm. But now they just look like debit cards, and no one can tell. But we digress. Yeah. Um, but of course.
0: Well, well, I don't even, Check your privilege before you're
1: awoke. I don't even know where we're going at, but here's where I want to go. Um, obviously, my question, you know, we we're talking about how World War the military and reenacting coincide. But you came back after a five-year hiatus, and your first event back was this event in Lakeland, Georgia.
0: Uh, yeah um what was your overall well, uh, opinion had a, and experience on that i had a great experience when i first got out um shout out to all the boys that do uh the fall Schmager impression a lot of them are veterans and uh they gave me a beautiful welcome home um sauce good yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, at Stuart air show i got to meet rupert Metzroth. i don't to name drop all all the homies but i just really appreciate what they did um and so since that since that time as i've been healing on my own I've been, I've been in the back of my head planning, you know, if, if I can, if I can get this fight with the VA, if I can, if I can find some type of small victory of some kind, how can I pay it back and and try to get, you know, three times the amount of guys to come in and, and, and give them the same treatment that I was given three times better, you know, like that's how I see this hobby. So much healing can come from something as ironic as a a fake war. (laughs) I know that sounds ridiculous, but, I mean, you guys saw it. Um, Well, what I think a lot of
1: people don't understand is, yes, it's a fake war. And, yes, it's fake ranks. But you have a group of like-minded people who have the same passion. Most of us are sleeping outside in tents. Mm -hmm. So we're experiencing the same cold weather.
0: The suck. The same
1: lumpy ground. Mm -hmm. The same black coffee. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And we're literally... Thank God not experiencing the horrors of war, but we're literally walking a mile in, in their boots. Some of them some some people are so crazy they wear the original boots. Yeah. And so when you you know, you do that for two or three days and every time you do that it's around the same group of guys. You start to
0: Build the cohesion, you does, start to build a bond with those guys. It doesn't happen as quickly because it's you know weekend to weekend, but yeah, you, tw- you, three times a year, you see the guys again. Every time they come out, they look more and more like a GI from World War II. It gives them motivation to shave their face, to you know conduct personal hygiene, to work out, to look look like a soldier. And you know that there are young men and, and young ladies in this hobby. I can I can already tell just from coming back, they need this man. They need this stability it's a, it's a slice of america that uh we happen to have the i guess I'll say privilege of discovering this this hobby and how closely anchored to the fabric of america we are because you know the us army's been around since june 14th 1775 you know that's that's a long time if the army were a person that's an old person and they've taught a lot of soldiers how to survive on behalf of this country and it's it's stuff that young people are still learning it's, I think it's great.
1: Well, not only do we need it, but society needs it. Mm-hmm. We're having such a hard problem with history right now.
0: A lot of people don't want to sit and read, so you just show them. Yeah, it's kind of.
1: It's weird we have talking to the face of it. Ah.
0: Oh. Uh-huh. That's uh-huh. why. Oh.
1: But I can edit all that up. But I, I don't think you know. It's not that we just need it, but I think society needs it. When we do these events, for the most part, we have a public battle. We have list living history. We have tents set up. We have all our gear on display. People come through and a majority of us talk to those people. And we're there as, like we said earlier, amateur historians at best trying to preserve history the best we can. Now, obviously the danger is when you're doing a sort of thing is the telephone game that things Mm -hmm. get changed and history gets changed. And, but we do our best to try to preserve everything and, and keep yeah, the, we,
0: keep the memory alive A good a good a good um rule is you have the the civilian eyewitness kind of unofficial accounts and then you know the United States Army Center for Military History they have, they have a beautiful digital archive right on army.mil that that gives you your your marching orders as a as a as a, a reenactor to start your research I mean it's all right there back when back before you know, the American public could argue, you know, which one's better, the official narrative of the unit or the eyewitness accounts? Well, in 1945, 46, 47, the Infantry Infantry Journal Press, I believe it was, Battery Press, Infantry Journal Press, a bunch of these different uh, private and and public publishing capabilities were putting out official histories down to most most of the time regimental level um, or divisional level, and they were doing just that. They were getting eyewitness accounts and the official narratives. They were getting with their S2 intelligence officers, their communication sergeants that were good at typing, and they edited these wonderful official histories of these units, and a lot of them would give you a manifest of people's homes of record so that they could visit each other later, and now, you know, 75 years on, we can look at those addresses and be like, hey, let's take a, a road trip and learn about this whole group of guys from this one town from this one unit and learn who they were and look at what their neighborhood looks like now, you know, and figure out who they were and uh, humans, you know? Well, well, and if you're lucky enough to do that, because as we know, all this stuff was done on paper Mm -hmm.
1: and it was stored. Some of it was stored in temperature controlled rooms.
0: Mm -hmm. Some of it wasn't. And some of it got burned in St. Louis in a three or four or five alarm fire that lasted for four days in the 1960s and destroyed 80% of the uh only hard copies of most of the army personnel's honorable discharge paperwork. Uh the So
1: if you ever wondered why you are having a hard time tracking down your grandfather's mm-hmm. re- record of military. Yeah. Uh there's a good reason for that.
0: Yeah, the the National Archives actually has a a very good write-up about it. It's only a couple paragraphs and it just explains the the tragedy of San, the St. Louis fire as a um as a budding historian um I'm a first-year member of the Company of Military Historians, the oldest organization of its kind uh, in America. But also as a uh, um, occasionally, a, a, as a volunteer uh, veteran post-service officer for my VFW post in Safety Harbor, trying to find information from World War II veterans is difficult sometimes. Like if you want to do a memorial for them or you want to help family members look up their family members' stuff from World War II, it, it's really heartbreaking to tell them, yeah i'm gonna go ahead and help you go through all this bureaucratic uh copy and paste and plug and play on this vast website that's kind of difficult to navigate and it's already an emotional thing for you because it's you know your grandpa or whatever and then all of a sudden you go there and it's like oh out of millions of records uh, zero zero partial records were found of john smith
1: and if you want to put that in modern day terms, uh, a lot of people don't realize this. Whenever a band goes to a recording studio and record, they have what they have call the master copy. And that's the, you know, this track is all drum. This track's all guitar. This all, track's all the singing. And they produce it together. But they have what they call the master copy. And like four years ago, there was a fire, I think, at Virgin Records or one mm. of the main record that their master copy yeah. plays. And like Neil Young, Nine Inch Nails, all these master copies of all this original recordings were lost. And so that if in the future anybody wanted to, you know, remember, in the 90s they put out the Beatles anthology where they got all the master tapes, they them, they yeah. For so many bands, that's no longer an option because their master copies are gone.
0: Like the Alexandria Library, yeah. the antiqu- antiquity. Gone. Yep.
1: And so anyhow, back to Georgia.
0: Yeah, World War II, sorry. That's right. Tangents, we're both... Guilty of this.
1: Um, back to what was your overall impression of the event? One of my favorite things about this event
0: it was, was Farby it was horrible. I left right away. I'm just kidding.
1: well. Other than that, <laughs> after you left, we had a great time. Um, <laughs> don't let Don't let the door hit you on your way out. Well, one of the cool things was at Camp Patton, which was a Boy Scout camp, and yes. I don't know how many acres it was. But there was some private land surrounding, but everybody was down for the cause. And so we were able to go out and do like a four-hour, eight-mile tactical
0: event. It was the first time in my 16 years of reenacting that I was not only encouraged to dig, I was ordered to dig in. That was so cool. Digging foxholes is fun. I, I helped a guy build a 1919 machine gun nest.
1: Being able to go out in the woods and not seeing cars. People standing around, smoking. hot yelling. dog stands. People not
0: yelling. Take your hit, buddy.
1: And going out. We had a great time. We had plenty of Germans to shoot at.
0: We had vehicles. They all, all overall, from what I saw, I'm, I'm slowly getting into some SS impressions and some uh, Wehrmacht impressions and a um, a Hermann Goering division impression for uh, Italy. Um, just from what little I know from doing research, using mostly... SS uh, Kriegsberichter archive photos. Um, those guys were really squared away, man. A lot of them are veterans. Some of them are law enforcement. Really, really good guys. Very, they're patriotic Americans, and they are choosing to play the bad guys so that people don't forget how ferocious they were. They take it very seriously, and uh, their impressions were outstanding.
1: And it was great to be able to push them back. Then they would dig in. We advance, right. push them back flank maneuvers and all that and so we did that for like four hours we went back took a hour lunch and then we
0: did a 45 minute battle for the public a rolling battle it kind of the last 48 hours basically well 24 to 36 essentially gave us time to work together privately go over our old kind of skills of of fighting the way that these guys would fight back then and rehearse kind of what we're going to do and then we just had a rolling battle and all sweaty and already dirty and looking like soldiers, you know, fighting each other. I I think we had like a couple hundred people for that last battle, maybe more.
1: Yeah, it definitely. Compared to the year before, uh, the audience numbers quadrupled. uh, The Mm. reenactor's numbers doubled. Shout out to Jeremy Patella and and the guys who put that together. And the nice thing is, is you could take it as serious as you want. You had the camp where you can be authentic or on the other end of the property (sighs) if you want to sleep in a camper or if you wanted to sleep on a That was the other thing
0: too is
1: it was completely up to you and those, what you wanted to make of it.
0: Those hosts, it seemed like and I told Jeremy this in a private email. I told I told him, "Look, man, like I know the cliff notes version of all these strict rules you have, but I can I can almost feel the exhaustion in some of these rules that you're laying out for some of these guys who need a little more, you know, guidance, but overall, you know, that the hosts really Accommodated every type of reenactor you can think of from day one walk on.
1: Yep, we had a couple of those.
0: Mm-hmm. Some of them are actually uh, Army reservists. Some of them were.
1: One of them's Air Force.
0: One of them was an Air Force Staff Sergeant. He, I, I believe his 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 family came out on the second day. He looked great. His name was Chance. He looked great. I think it was like one of his first events. Yep. And you know he 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 had a little bit of deer and headlights because it's World War II. But I mean, quickly he was like, oh, it's just like basically the military this is cool you could like see all these new guys they felt comfortable my point is the hosts they they really tried to accommodate all these different types of people yes even farby people because you know i I remember growing up you know in this in this hobby and and we pick at each other's feathers man like okay yeah your jeep cap's the wrong the wrong shade (laughs) of brown like Okay, It's
1: it has a cardboard it, bill and not the leather just, bill, so it ain't going to hold the fold properly. Yeah, d- when you put dude, it in your pocket, yeah, help. just
0: just just go talk to Roland or Juan at at the front or World War II Impressions when you get the scratch and 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 make it better. I'm more at at my point in my life where I've actually lost friends to real war and the trauma of real war. I've lost more people to suicide and just pulling a nutty and disappearing forever. Myself included, I'm projecting on that last one, but (laughs) my, my biggest concern is, are you alive? Did you show up on time? And if not, uh, did, did you fix whatever it was that caused you not to show up on time? And are you ready to have a good time and be safe? And are you
1: open to constructive criticism? Correct. I mean, we've talked about this before yet.
0: This shit's expensive. It is. We're talking about it on the way back over here. And so
1: if you're starting out, you know. You buy a lesser quality grade M1 belt that may not have the right exact color khaki, but once you get it dirty, it ain't going to matter anyhow.
0: And then you pass it off to the next guy until he can get better, which is what you did.
1: It's like, who cares? As long as you're not showing up wearing Vietnam web gear, right. I don't care. As long as you're not if showing up wearing Korean War you know, web gear or Korean War boots, mm-hmm. I don't care if it's at the front or from spearhead on eBay. The only main difference is is the durability of it. Yeah, my big thing, too, is... Because the audience can't
0: tell from 100 yards away. Correct. My big thing, too, is am I I in a position to where I can even point a finger, you know? And like I've said to a couple people, my overall goal is to, for just my individual impression, have every single thing, reproduction, made in America, from the underwear to the P.T. shirt, to the M1 carbine, to the boots, to the socks, down to the thread. I want everything to be made in america to show that yes not only did america win this damn war but 75 years later we still have people out there hooking and jabbing like roland curtis um i can't remember his name but the it's gentleman be hard from, task to be honest with you the, the other gentleman from sm wholesale we got guys juan gonzalez and his wife from world war ii impressions you know these people and i know i'm missing jerry from what price glory i remember these guys when i was a kid and they they, ha- you know, some of them have American-made stuff. Some of them have imported stuff yep. from the Middle East. Some of them have Indonesia, China- Malaysia. I personally prefer American-made stuff for GI, just to give my my guys and my girls that American-made feeling. But even if you're not that much into this as I am, we have come such a long way in our ability as a, really as a community to keep history alive by, like reproducing it. Well, here's a problem you're going to run into. Not only price,
1: but um, not having to do with World War II. About 10 years ago, I was reading a uh, Reader's Digest. And uh, the reporter was trying to bait some famous fashion designer. Mm-hmm. They're in a fashion district in New York, mm-hmm. and they're walking through the building.
0: And, like Williamsburg, Brooklyn, or whatever it's called. And
1: the, and the reporter said, you know, I can't help but notice, you know, you make all your stuff in New York. You're one of the only fashion designers who make all your clothes here in America, in New York, and it's mm-hmm. all high price because you got to pay labor rates that are higher. Which I personally am
0: willing to do because well, I'm feeding an American. But
1: here's the thing. She said, but I can't help but notice all of your seamstress are Asian or Hispanic. Mm. Why don't you have any Caucasians? And she looked at her and said, because— they stopped teaching home ec in high school. Correct. Caucasian women don't know how to run sewing machines.
0: They just don't know. Now, I will say. I'm not
1: hiring the Asians and the Hispanics because I pay them less. I'm hiring them because they know how they to just, operate the machinery. Yeah. They know how to do it.
0: Now, there is, there are those. those.
1: And so my point being, it's, it's going to be harder to do because there's less places in America that have the equipment and the manpower the means,
0: to produce.
1: Regardless of stuff what they look here. like
0: or where they're from, just human beings that are American are having a harder time finding the means just to learn the skills because we don't teach it right now you know i'll give uh, i'll give um perfect example I'm, i grew up and i was born in 78 okay
1: all the women in my family my aunt my mom everybody knew how to crochet they crochet blankets they knew how to crochet neck uh, scarves, all that shit 2020 i may know three
0: women who know how to to carry on that old tradition yeah and on the same token on the on the front end of it whether it's a man or a woman people don't know how to fit other people into suits correctly anymore People don't know how to do that. People don't know how to really look at s- do take you s- take a piece of clothing and, and look at it and it's a piece of American clothing and then look at something that is maybe of lesser quality in order to have higher volume around the world. And there are people who, who it's like when they make fun of wine tasters, like they can't tell the difference. Yeah. And then if you try to explain to them I only why it's drink better. Gray goose. Yeah. And if you try to explain to them why it's better, all of a sudden it becomes a A nationalism argument or some political nonsense. It's like, no, I literally just wish I could feed an American. That's no, I know the answer to this because you spent seven years in military.
1: But do you sew your own your own
0: patches? Um, believe it or not, my um, my first uh, yes. I'm not going to give you the Fox News answer, but yes. Uh, or the CNN answer. Well, let me have that. Let me, let me, let me. Sorry, I blew out there. burying that needle. Yeah. Uh, sorry. You're all uh, over the place. I'm actually surfing your, your yeah, pot know, because you, you talk real low. Then
1: I got to turn it up and you talk yeah. real high. So I'm going to have to do a lot of editing, but that's sorry, all right.
0: bro. But yeah, it's it's actually a skill that I learned from my uh, my maternal grandmother and her younger sister, my great aunt. And they, they're really the ones that got me on to sewing and showed me the basic stuff when I was like nine. And then, um, well,
1: I think a lot of that has to do with economical. You were well, saying you grew up in a ghetto. I grew up in trailers well, in Kentucky, so I had to sew my and I started sewing my own holes in my pants and shit like that at an early age because
0: by it the had time, to be done. By the time I I got into my teenage years, we were out of that that really bad sure. neighborhood, but it was still very difficult, you know, for my dad, single parent in the '90s and everything. But what really got me with my sewing and my home ex skills is uh, reenacting. When I got in, when I was fourteen we had a lot of older adult mentors who were you know, very professional people in their own lives and they were making sure that we were set to no survival skills essentially. So yeah, I, believe it or not, I actually still have from my buddy uh, Lee Mudd, who is actually a 90th infantry division reenactor. And, uh, um, it's actually the guy that helped me get into the military. He was uh, a mentor of mine growing up. Uh, he showed us, before a very, very prestigious uh, militaria show in Maitland when we were younger, when I was about 16, all four of us went as 15th Infantry Regiment 3rd ID guys. We actually ran into a 3rd Infantry Division, 15th Infantry Regiment, ANZIO veteran who loved our impression. And uh, I, the point is, I actually sewed every single item onto that Class A jacket. And the jacket that is actually a gift from Lee <laughs> I didn't know that it was, what this jacket was until I looked at it before the Lakeland event two weeks ago. The whole time I've had this jacket from Lee, I had no idea it was it was dated January nineteen forty
1: two. Yeah. Original. Before I went to the um, National Museum for the Pacific War, um John Thomas gave me and I had it in that closet for years, but it didn't fit me because I'm six foot five and I weigh 215 pounds, and it was designed for somebody who was like five two. I actually had, and I donated it to the National Museum of Pacific War, but I had a Class A Marine Corps uniform that was mm. made in um, New Zealand. Yeah, when they were over there after Guadalcanal, and it sat in that closet forever, and I ended up donating it to the museum. Do you do you sew
0: your patches too? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Sometimes they're a little crooked sometimes the stitch aren't in place but that's more authentic
0: yeah yeah the um my my primary impression i've been working on recently is a first special service force um currently a specific company belonging to third regiment um i'm actually trying to portray a specific first sergeant no later than march of this year for the dade battlefield event uh he can actually be seen in a in a page of one of the first special service force uh books but um Lost my train of thought again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what are we saying? Uh, Your uniform stitching. Okay, yeah. The um, the thing is, is back in World War II, they had some very rudimentary Army regulations compared to what we have now, which I call AR670-FUN, which is Army Regulation 670-1, the wear and appearance of the U.S. Army uniform to include your shaving and your haircuts. But back then in World War II, those men and women... Of all walks of life that were in the military, drafted, enlisted, whatever, they um, they were defining those uh, those standards. So you have a lot of weird stuff you see in original photos. But that is really when our our army started to get really squared away. No, probably well, probably well, the I would say if we were to call it stitch Nazi, uh, I would say the nineteen fifties to Vietnam were probably the most strack. Soldiers you had ever seen, because you had drill sergeants that were master sergeants by that point. There's a lot of those 1950s and early 60s basic training videos floating around now on YouTube. Those guys were strack.
1: Well, let me ask you this: Would you agree with the statement that the maybe the P42s for the airborne and the oh, M- the jumpsuit and the M43s were the first real battle utility uniforms? Correct. And here's why I say that. Um, you're talking about uh, uniform code. When those guys landed, uh, specifically the um, the Army, not so much the Marines because they had their P41s and their, their utilities, but the uniforms the guys landed on Normandy with, the wool trousers, mm-hmm. the wool button-up shirt, the M41 jacket, and the boots, with the exception of the web gear the leggings and the helmet, that's basically what they wore to church every Sunday.
0: Yeah. They the,
1: fought Nazis in their Sunday best.
0: Right. And if you were in 3rd Army, you had to have a tie. Yeah. Um, Could you imagine that? Going to combat
1: in the same wool, trousers, boots, tie, and shirt, and jacket
0: yeah, that you would have
1: worn to church on Sunday.
0: That's. Yeah. Well, they
1: didn't have battle gear. They weren't wearing the uh, jump jackets that were designed for combat. The M43 hadn't come out yet that which were designed for
0: combat. It had, but it was... Um it was relegated to the 5th uh, Army. Yeah. Mark Clark, if I recall correctly, who is a Citadel graduate. Okay. If I if I recall correctly, Mark Clark was the large proponent for that. And at that point in 43-44, um, the 1st Special Service Force was receiving a lot of this brand new gear based on who they were. And Mark Clark was actually quoted as saying, um, you know, I'll give Colonel Frederick whatever he wants. He's getting the job done, his, his Devil's Brigade. A lot of those guys in the 5th Army and then ultimately the 7th Army, they were the first ones to receive the first model or first pattern 43 jackets. And someone's going to correct me if I'm wrong. I think the first pattern ones were a little bit longer than the second pattern. But they were the first ones to receive the boots.
1: The double buckles?
0: The jackets, yes. The M1943 combat boot. And that was originally, and again, this actually came from Lee Mudd. Um, And by the way, if you ever go to the 90th ID's reenacting website and there's a lot of those uh like artistically made uniform standards uh lee mudd actually worked on a lot of that and it's really funny to hear people say oh yeah i go to that website i'm like yeah that guy's like my best friend (laughs) from childhood (laughs) but that that uh that stuff is very helpful in showing the development of that uniform either through the artistic standards that you see on that that specific reenacting website or if you look in books such as um Shelby Stanton's U.S. Army uniforms of World War II, which was highly recommend, re- recommended by Lee when we were young.
1: Well, that was my going to be my next question. Is that they actually what have a book,
0: whole chapter devoted to the development of the forty-three uniform? For the cats
1: listening to this who are just getting into the hobby and they want to do the research, what is the best book or resource would you send people to for researching the proper uniform for the proper time?
0: Right. You know, um, you're,
1: you can't go. For example, if you're going to go do a Terawa impression from Marine Corps. You can't show up with your early 1903 Springfield and your basically your Gu- your Guadalcanal impression because uniforms change, the canteen covers change, the first aid pouches change. Tables
0: of organization and equipment change. Yeah, completely. so you
1: have to make sure that when you're doing an event that's specific to a timetable and a location, you know, you're not going to show up and do
0: a... Well, The, brink, the to answer your question, I try not to reinvent the wheel. And some of it's seemingly antiquated now, but uh, I actually met this guy. His name is, uh, if I recall correctly, F. Brian Mead, and he did uh, Hard Scrabble Farm. Um, I I think I'm getting that right. My head's not what it used to be when I was a kid, so I can't always recall these names. But Hard Scrabble Farm was a great starter website if you don't want to go too deep now. My suggestion is to always read at least a book that has been made from paper. Um,
1: Yes, I'm a big proponent. I've said so many times I don't want to bore the audience. I've said so many times that it's so important that we keep the hard copy of our history because it's too easy to delete digital paragraphs.
0: I would say if you really wanted to get good and have several hardbound books, look for your unit's history down to the regimental level. If you can't find that, definitely find it from, I believe it's Battery Press. They reproduce the um, unit histories. And they're anywhere from 40 to like $80. But once you get those books, man, like you're going to start, you're, you are on the right track, man. And then you just have to start looking at photographs, um, maps that you can find. Um, You know, don't just quote unquote Google it. But the big thing is getting the official unit history, trying to find some memoirs, um, getting a basic gist of the GI. This is how we did it. We used Shelby Stanton's uh, Order of Battle of World War II. We used Shelby Stanton's U.S. Army uniforms of World War II, and then we used books such as uh, *The Deadly Brotherhood*, which gave you a very good snapshot all across the board of what it was like being a soldier in World War II. Um, really stuff like that. I mean, it, it really depends on what you want, how deep you want to go. If you really wanted to just do a, a generic GI impression. It's it's not that difficult to do. You just have to figure out Italy buckle boots, Northwest Europe, probably low low quarters with some leggings and a 41 jacket. It, it really a lot of times you can you can figure out what you have to do by just looking at some photos of the unit you want to portray, and uh, find guys like me. Uh, we don't always carry rank, but I, I was recently asked to do a platoon sergeant impression. Um, come to guys like us and and we'll just point in the right direction. And a lot of times, like the guys saw at Lakeland, I'll literally bring out a tough box with all my books and just be like, yeah, check it out. You know, the German reenactors saw that at the Dade battlefield. I I brought out an SS, um, official SS, uh, veteran organization history book called when all the brothers are silent. And and a lot of the SS reenactors had never seen that book. And they're like, wow, like this is, this is really a book. It was really written by those vets and it was edited by Joachim Piper. He edited it and translated it into English. Guys like Panzer helped write it and Paul Hauser who actually started the Waffen SS actually wrote the forward at like 96 years old. It's, it's really no, it's really knowing what questions to ask. Like, where do you want to start? For me, it would be either your head or your feet. And then the, and vice versa. And then you work on stuff that touches your skin. You know, if you're a, if you're a veteran, you'll understand, like when you go to the central issue facility, you got to give back what doesn't touch your skin and what does you keep start working on stuff that touches your skin. And if you're a, if you're holding an NCO rank, it's an implied task that, yeah, while my guy is trying to get squared away with his clothes, I should be getting his gear that he can give back to me at the end of the event. And that's why you want to get good gear in case, you know, he it gets caught on something or whatever. It, you know, does that? Does that? Yeah, that.
1: That's that's a perfect answer. Yeah,
0: pe- people, people know. I, I kind of talk in tangents nowadays, so
1: that's all right. Now we're gonna go back to Georgia real quick. So we did the tactical, we did the public event, and then as they always do, we wrap it up because I'm I'm really trying to encourage people to go next year. Yeah, it, it, the, the event's growing. It's an event that we need, mm-hmm. especially here in Florida. Yeah, our ability to do a live fire.
0: The ability to possess firearms has gotten a little bit difficult with all this horrible stuff going on.
1: But anyhow, it's it's a nice place. The camp, the Boy Scout camp let us have the run of the place. Literally, right. they don't care what we do as long as we're not vandalizing. It and destroying has to be stuff.
0: legal, moral, and ethical, and nobody outranks four-star general safety.
1: And so it's a great event. And of course, we wrap it up by going back to the um, location that it was last year for the USO show. Jeremy comes out. They have guys Beautiful. acting out. Great event. Bob Hope stuff. They take Bob Hope's transcripts from comedy acts. They change the location to coincide with Lakeland, Georgia, but it's a great event. If you guys haven't been there, definitely check it out next year. Probably will be around the same time. Obviously we're going to change up the theme. Last year was Italy. This year it was uh, a and uh great event. So check it out. And uh, I had a great time. The weather got a little chilly, but other than that, it was good. It didn't rain too much. And um, all in all, you know, you have a, 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 there's always a few snafus when it comes to events and we had one, but, but we're not really going to get into that It's a great event.
0: I was going to say,
1: and I want to get into, you know, one of the things that you and I were talking about, we kind of led to at the beginning of this episode is we were talking about getting a airborne impression put together because I had the uniform, but my old group fell apart. Uh, one of the guys who's in my old group, they went off and started a hundred and first little group but I already have the 82nd uniform with the correct trousers. And so in order to join the 101st, I'd have to go buy new pants. And so you were talking about doing 82nd airborne 508th. Why is that? Why was that a good impression for the state of Florida?
0: So to give you the synopsis of how it all happened, my first ever veteran welcome home parade was in Bradenton last year. And I ran into a bunch of other veterans from all kinds of different time periods. And, uh, they were all dressed in different time periods from the past for the veteran appreciation parade. We want to do historical stuff. Awesome, dude! He's showing me his uh, his uh, airborne impression.
1: stitch patch.
0: Noise, noise, noise. Nice. But uh, my buddy Rob, actually a Navy vet, he was like, "Hey, man, I know I'm a little bit older, but you want to do a 508 impression? My friend's, uh, you know, f- my friend's dad was in a, a unit that went through Camp Landing." And my dad went through basic training at camp landing and we found out that, you know, company B one five Oh eight went through camp landing, you know, Hey, you're a paratrooper. We we need a paratrooper to actually like help us like look the part. Well, stuff, stuff fell through a couple of times this year and <clears throat> Rob and I couldn't take the field, but, uh, he is currently, uh, I believe doing a position of a platoon sergeant in B company and he's got his own little group and they got their own little schedule. Um, you know so as a as a token of appreciation to the you know that friend of mine I want to expand it I want to have an able company and a baker company um and the reason that I ch- you know am am agreeing to do first battalion 508 is a uh they they activated at Camp Landing Florida
1: which was located where exactly
0: Uh Stark Florida at a Camp Landing National Guard base up in northern Florida
1: set up by the panhandle
0: uh it's it's more. It's more toward uh, like Jacksonville, Orlando, sure. Gainesville, that area. There's a there's a, a perfectly circular lake up there that they use for a reservoir, and it's it's a training area that's been utilized since World War II, I believe, even before, and um, <clears throat> it's now used for the real current war going on. So we used to be able to do events there all the time, but the point is that the 508th Parachute Infantry Regiment started here in, in Florida. And then they worked their way up to, uh, to go to jump school. And then they spent time on maneuvers at camp McCall, which is outside of Fort Bragg, west of Fort Bragg, North Carolina. I myself, I've spent several a month at camp McCall and field problems. I've, uh, I myself have jumped out of airplanes on that drop zone. Uh, it's very personal to me as a paratrooper, who's actually done time in those places and seen some of those historical buildings that are still there. And so from there, the other, the other reason is uh, Dick O'Donnell, who I believe is actually living in Florida, if I, if I uh, understand correctly, he's the current president or past year president of the 508th uh, Association. He and I have been in contact, and he, he's essentially blessed off on, on this great idea to try to get the 508th reenacting group going down here in the South. So it's, it's a very personal thing. But here's the other thing. Research is actually going to be really easy for all of us to fall in and do Able and Baker Company because um, former First Lieutenant um, Robert Adams, if I'm saying his name right, I believe it's Robert Adams, he was the Able Company commander during the Battle of the Bulge. And at the first advanced infantry officer course after World War II, when he was a major, he was tasked with writing a thesis about what it was like to be in charge of Able Company 1508 during the Battle of the Bulge. And the friends and family of the 508th Association have been so kind to provide all of that on digits on their website. All we have to do is just figure out what our our game plan is going to be next year at Lakeland, and we've already got the airborne thing covered.
1: As long as their theme... Coincides with what the airborne was doing, which would
0: be we were the northwest shoulder. um
1: Well, they may change the theme next year. Like I said, last year was Italy. This year was Battle of the Bulge. So, oh, if, right, if, right, right. Obviously, if they're doing now a if, theme where the airborne wasn't involved, we'll have to change up our,
0: our. Now, if they're doing an Italy event, um I've already got that covered. um You know, I'm, I'm a paratrooper man. Like I, I know, I know where to get the. You know, anyone out there that's a veteran that's been in the army that's done a a Soldier of the Month board or a Soldier of the Quarter board, you know. I don't know that answer at this time for sergeant, but I will get that answer for you in the future for sergeant or sergeant major. You know, I I have that capability where I know where to get the answer. I just have to know how to ask the question correctly. And I actually had said to some of the reenactors in my long rapid fire emails that I sent at an almost manic level last night before I drove down here, you know, writing training scenarios and writing programs of instruction uh, when I was getting out of the army my last year that that was actually my job even as a buck sergeant i was I was doing a job well above my pay grade many times you know writing these training scenarios is not that big of a deal for me i could write it in a five paragraph op order i can make it really really cool and i do it for absolutely for free you know just feed me give me a beer, just let me have a good time at these events if you help me ghost write these scenarios i have no problem doing it you know uh, don's actually right here looking at the book uh, by zig burrows zig was a uh demo platoon guy in the 508th at the headquarters element and um the editor of the 508th connection written by zig burrows was uh robert adams the able company commander he actually edited this i mean we literally have the bible for this unit
1: well and going back to what we we're saying earlier about if you're getting into this or you want to start your own group um Look around, see what your local history was, because if you can find a group that was stationed in your state yeah, or near your city, yes, Um it's kind of like what, if you ever work in media, work in radio, or work in uh, you're a local news reporter, the your program director or your news director will always tell you get the local angle, get yeah. the local angle. And so, if you're at an event, I concur, and you're doing a living history event, and you're in St. Louis, and you got people who are native to St. Louis coming to your event. If you can do an impression of a group that was stationed somewhere. Around St. Louis, it 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 brings in that local feel. You can oh you you know where that mall is. Well, that used to be this and that, and this is where we're stationed at. And so, if you can find through history of a group or a division or a platoon or anything that came out of your local area, it don't even matter if you find hey the uh, Merchant Marines trained here by off this lake, you know, because of the lack of resources early yeah. on the war. Yeah. Perfect. Do it to it. Yeah. And and those are the ones that are real fun. When you can find something that, oh, yeah, well, you know, early on in the war, uh, we didn't have the vessels, and so the Navy was actually training on, you know, John boats on this lake. Right. It, that's the cool stuff that people forget about. Mm-hmm. And that's the Fla- stuff that gets people of, attention. Bags of
0: flour for the, the artillery rounds. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy some of
1: the stuff that those guys were
0: doing early on. Yeah. Early war is actually something that I'm trying to get into, believe it or not. Um, I know Juan Gonzalez has some of his early war stuff that's still available online. You know, if you guys want to go out and buy it now and and, and beat me to it, please do. <laughs> but I would love to take some of these early pre—I almost said nine eleven <laughs> pre pre Pearl Harbor <laughs> pre Pearl Harbor uh, field manuals and look at some of their drawings and realize bayonet training. The the photo is of a guy wearing, like, 1937-era, like, riding mm-hmm. breeches and, like, puttees with the type 1 all-leather service shoes. And then the 1937, you know, getting a little bit nerdy here. But could you imagine setting up a, a, a 1940, just prior to December 1941, bayonet training?
1: I've always had the or delusion or, to get a post hole digger and plant two posts and... Hang up the the sandbag yeah. and do, ban-
0: but <laughs> or or alternatively, putting a uh, like a DNX like completely non firing replica of like an M1 carbine in a person's hand and tell them, all right, go follow this little trail through the woods and you're gonna do a uh, you're gonna we're gonna test your your scouting skills, what you can spot. Being able to do the have a guy as like a buck sergeant, like I was telling um, Don earlier, February fourth is actually my tenth year anniversary of becoming e E five buck sergeant. Um, I would love to do just a regular early thirties, kind of rough around the edges, airborne, just buck sergeant who just wants to teach people how to do stuff. Yeah, that'd be so cool, man. All day long, I hardly say a word except I belt out like comically comically mechanical orders this is the bayonet like <laughs> you know what i mean i'd love to do that so
1: we've talked a lot about reenacting today um before you came on the show i actually took you around cape coral and showed you some of the uh, world i took you to the uh military southwest florida military museum and library you and i went over to the um iwo jima statue where they had the gulf war memorial uh, the iraq war memorial the uh, chosen reservoir And then I took you downtown Fort Myers where they had the 82nd Airborne Memorial statue set up. Um, What was your overall impression of how we here in Southwest Florida remember our vets? And where do you think World War II reenacting stands right now? And what do you hope to see in the future before we wrap up the show?
0: So... All right. Just to give you feedback of what you just asked me, you want me to give you my overall view of how Southwest Florida does it for sure. the vets. You want to give me the overall impression of where reenacting is right now. And then what my, where are your hopes for the hobby. Roger that. Uh, first of all, man, I really glad you invited me out. This is, I asked you earlier if you've ever had someone tell you that you're saving their life. Uh, this is kind of part of my healing process. so I appreciate it, man. I uh, just met you and, uh, you're a good dude. I think, I think,
1: uh, I'm all right. I don't know about good. but I'm all right.
0: (laughs) You're, you're a civilian. You're really open. You said, Hey man, I'm not, I'm not a vet, but dude is like the average American as a dad. You're doing well, man. I, I, in the last few months, I've met a lot of really great Americans, moms and dads and families. You know, you, you opened up your home to me. You just met me. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't even call ahead. I was like, yeah, I'll be there no later than 1330. So,
1: well, that's the nice thing. Because you don't you have guys, a phone, you don't have the yeah. ability to give me an update. And the last time and I, I also, heard one from you was yesterday via email. But because I knew of your military history, I knew I didn't have to sit around worrying, is this guy going to show up? Yeah, I, I knew like, he would be here.
0: I think it was like three minutes late. Yeah. After driving like two and a half hours, it was like three minutes late just because of traffic. But to answer that question, man, you know, you open your... You, I was a village stability operations um, soldier in Afghanistan. And from a VSO standpoint, you know... you. You're the village, man. You're like, hey, check out my village. You want some coffee? You want a water? Hey, check out this cool thing I just got. Hey, put some shoes on. And I showed up with no shoes on. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Put some damn shoes on. He's like, where's your shoes? I'm like, I'm a cracker. It's Saturday. Leave me alone. He's like, whatever. We're going to go out into town. And you stink. Make
1: yourself presentable, damn it.
0: (laughs) You know, but yeah, to answer that first question, like Southwest Florida, man, you guys. We're trying. This, you know, and this town has that 1950s look. You know, all the all the all the houses are they're close together, but they're far enough away where people have their own yards. You guys are doing very well. the The, the overall charm of this place really struck me in, in the beginning, and the drive here on a Saturday heading south was so relaxing.
1: Yeah, it's not too bad.
0: You guys, you guys have everything planned out the way your memorials are, to where it's like, listen, dude, Florida, and this really is true. As crazy as we are, Florida is in fact one of the most patriotic you know, states in the country. Well,
1: that's because we are the location that most veterans, regardless if it's World War II, Korean, or Vietnam, this is where they retire to.
0: Right. So it's like it was almost like every street you went down, there was something that felt not forced. It was like there was permanence. Yeah. Like like these are flagpoles that are meant to be here. This is an Iwo Jima memorial that we restored. You know, that, that airborne um memorial, it needs a lot of TLC, but still, you know, they people here in this town, they they get it. And it felt real good for me, man. We it shot really some
1: video good. today. It'll probably take me a week to edit it all together. But later on this week, if you go to YouTube, look up Digital four ten, or I'll probably share the video on the Facebook page. But uh we shot some video at the Southwest Florida Military Museum and Library, we shot some video at the Iwo Jima statue, the Iraq war statue, the chosen Reservoir Memorial and that eighty second airborne memorial down in downtown Fort Myers. And so you can see all that via the face uh the YouTube channel.
0: Now the second question you asked me, where do I see the the hobby right now? Honestly, coming back from being a snot sixteen no year old kid that some of the older reenactors are probably like to
1: being a snot nose thirty one kid. <laughs> yeah,
0: they, a lot of the reenactors probably like, Oh, that guy's that that kid was a smart ass. Yeah, that's fine, but I still love you guys. Um I love all you guys. If it weren't for you guys, I wouldn't have a hobby to come back to because believe it or not, the last five years, you know, with my situation, I, I was completely turned off by all this stuff. And, um, you know, I reacted to my first event in ways that i had never felt when it came to war. I'm like, what's wrong with me? So I just kind of like stayed away for a while, but I came back and everyone was like, dude, I'm so, I'm so glad you're back. This is awesome. You know? And I was like, yeah, likewise. So where I'm thinking that the hobby is right now, there's a lot of older people in the hobby that are exhausted. They're very tired. They've been trying to keep things together. They're, You know, they're the Dershamers, Art and Meg.
1: Yep. Man. Both of them been on the show.
0: Sam Howell, Jeremy Petrella. These guys have been in this while I was gone in the real military. Vern Jenkinson, good Lord. Like all these people that I haven't seen in so long. I saw Mike Blosky running the Bradenton parade. It's like, man, I've seen these people in so long. I'm so glad they're alive. I'm glad they're, have, they're you know, successful in their life and every time i see people now in their hobby in this hobby in their oppression they look great man and the only people who don't look great they just showed up and they're getting squared away by these people they're like hey put this on this is great now to to put that into like a, a mla format thesis statement i currently think that the hobby is doing absolutely outstanding uh from 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 the second one i showed up to lakeland late and i believe his name is colin he's a former uh marine corporal a r- real life and his father was there fighter pilot and his two uncles who also served in the military a whole family of military vets i show up i give them my 20 bucks to register pre-registered pay they hand me a b company 117th infantry regiment weekend pass that like jeremy worked on like how long ever long it took him to type up all these things the point is like from second number one, they it was like instant credibility. Not only do I have, because you know you guys they try to get pocket trash. No, we're gonna give you the pocket trash. We provide the pocket trash for you. Here's your weekend pass. I mean, they they took so much time to have so much attention to detail that my point is that I think the hobby's doing great right now.
1: And it says little things. I remember, oh, forgive me, I can't remember if it was Dade Battlefield or one of the other ones, but and I still have it. I was probably in my hbts Um, one of the events I did about two years ago. They mailed you in the mail a Western Union <laughs> paper. It's you've been all drafted. Yellow, saying, here's you've been drafted. You need to show up in nice. here on this time and day. And I kept that little Western Union paper. It's in one of the pockets of the uniforms I have hanging there in the closet. I know
0: you showed me Mark Marisek's tongue-in-cheek, those, those tongue-in-cheek letters thing. from and, the Marine event. And like. by the way, Jerry <laughs> Oxley
1: gave you a compliment. You were running the battalion aid station. And when you took your hit and you came back, not only did you get a toe tag, but you presented us with documentation oh, yeah. of the name and the basically of someone who took a hit during the real battle of the bulge.
0: So the way we did it is um, I tried to think as simple as possible. I was a combat lifesaver uh, in my army career and uh, I got to use those skills in real life several times. So I have a little bit of real world uh, combat trauma um, dealing with human suffering for the civilian side. For the most part, my point is that I've seen real, I've seen real battlefield trauma. And um, from my, my studies, I've kind of learned that the average combat lifesaver qualified soldier of today is very similar to the average medical aid man up to mm, company or battalion level and uh, in World War Two. So I was like, you know what? If I don't want to carry a gun this event and just kind of I want to feel it out. You know, I don't know a lot of these people. They probably need a medic because I, I remember back in the day people didn't like to do doc. They wanted to shoot the gun. Nah, I don't want to shoot the gun this, this, this weekend. So I said, hey, look. I'm gonna start doing some research on uh, airborne medics, and the first thing I went with was uh was the book was the book the way we the way we were number three by um, Michael Detres about Doc McElvoy, the man who basically set the set the tone for airborne medics, and I got to talking with Jeremy, and he said, "Hey, look, man, we need to figure out a way to have a, a really really interesting, engaging." And like rational, logical way to have a hit taking process. And I said, you know what, man? I've been doing a lot of research on using the American Battle Monuments Commission. And I, I basically said, All right, well, what unit are we mostly portraying? They said 30th Infantry Division, 117th Infantry Regiment. And I said, All right, the easiest thing I can do is I can go on ABMC.gov and search for specifically guys from the 117th Infantry from December 14th 1944 to about January 20th 1945 and we came up with 31 names a roughly approximately a platoon of guys who are still currently buried in military cemeteries that are maintained by the American Batamones Commission over in Europe a whole platoon of guys and I made four copies of each and we made it through the entire list by the end and um, I think only one person actually uh, forgot their paper and it was for Howard King, Howard E King, staff sergeant. He was from Wayne County, Detroit, Michigan. Um, everyone else policed up their paperwork, whoever it was, I guess, mine's in my haversack. Yeah. I mean, and and then you also got a a casualty feeder card and it made it very, very personal because we're not just shooting guns at each other with blanks. You know, these, these are real people, both sides, Nazis and the allies, young men, forced to do some really horrible things to each other and we're still living the echoes of that right now so we made it very very personal for this event and i promised that by next year um it'll be a lot more comprehensive and now that people see how easy it is i mean hell man the COs or the first sergeants or the platoon sergeants or the squad leaders from all these different groups they can just do it themselves super easy you just figure out what unit you're portraying and you can figure out right down to the uh to the regiment even the company sometimes where these people were uh, who these people were. And when you go to take a hit, your medic assigned to you can give you that, that sheet of paper and make it way more personal. Um, The other thing I want to do is I want to start trying to, and you know, some people are going to not like what I have to say, but I don't care because I'm, I'm trying to be a historian here and I'm trying to be as personal as possible. I'm going to try doing the same thing for the Germans. Yeah. You know, Joachim Piper went in there with about 5,000 men and he literally walked out with 800 of them. And after over a week of staying awake at 31 years old, a full Colonel in the SS, Joachim Piper had a massive heart attack. Those guys, you know, whatever the politics and the fanaticism, those dudes fought really hard and they lost and they lost a lot of guys. And those were still people's dads, brothers, sons, sons, figuring out who they were. Now, another thing too, is uh, the sixth SS Nord reenactors were out there, which, technically they weren't there they were they were in nordwind um but they were part of the same overall offensive down in the central part of the the western um western front near new years 1945 there's a well-known photo of a dead ss guy from the 6th ss nord who looks very young and he's and you can you can tell that he had a really rough time as he died uh, by himself alone like up against this haystack and he's from the 6th ss and it's actually a fa- fairly well-known photo and uh, the combat cameraman from the u um, s army signal corps they they took plenty of time to film his dead body, and so we have a very good photograph of him. It would be I think it would be best beneficial for the entire planet if we could figure out like at least who that one guy was for that time period and try to figure out a little bit it's just who you know who are these people's sons, who are these people's dads, being able to do it with the American side, and then finding the equivalent to do it for the German side, and um, helping people. From the entire world, kind of come to closure. Same with like the Japanese, the Russians. Well,
1: and basically, what you're trying to do is keep the history and living history events. Um, yeah. So much, you know. After a while, you know, you do some of these events. It's so easy just to go generic. And that's and, and, and you yeah. get a little burnt out on it. And so when you do an event like this, and someone presents that, I know Jerry Oxley was very impressed with it. Um, and but when you have something, Jerry, the the, the sun, uh, J- Jerry and Josh. Yeah. yeah. J- the father was very, Josh,
0: stop growing. You scare me, man. Yeah, That,
1: that kid's growing. Ugh, that poor son of a bitch will be taller than me. I know. <laughs> but anyhow, it's, you know, those are kind of key factors of what we need to try to do when it comes to events. And, you know, that Georgia event, I hope it gets bigger. And too, hopefully man. if you guys are listening to this and you're Come out, up in man. Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, you know, Tennessee, Georgia, Hey Georgia, where are you? This is an event in the Southern end of your home state.
0: Yeah, you guys need to start showing up. Greatest part two is Valdosta. I didn't realize until the last day. Oh, man. This is the hometown of one of my favorite, like, anti-comedy comics, Bill Hicks. Yep. Dang it. Well, everyone's a loser now, Mr. 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 <laughs> what are you complaining about? Everyone's a loser to you. Bill Hicks, man. Gotta oh, love him. Tangent. Sorry. And so, um, you know,
1: just to wrap things up, you know, I, I think there's a little while there things are getting a little rough in the... Uh the community, but we're things are getting straightened out. Yeah, that things third, are getting better.
0: That third question: Where do I think the hobby is going? I'm oh, doing fine. I'm doing great. Um, I saw a lot of young people at that event. I got to teach a young lady how to dance. Yeah, to teach... that was
1: great. You, I, I, I can do the, you know, the box.
0: Yeah. Um, swing I, dancing is actually one of the I, easiest. I want to learn. Dancing.
1: I need to take classes. But you were up. You said you started at 15.
0: Fifteen, yeah. and I
1: jokingly said, "Well, imagine how good you were if you would have started at 12.
0: <laughs> but uh, you were taught a few ladies, and um, they had a good time. I had a lot of compliments. People had a great time. That was the whole point. I wanted someone. I wanted people to learn swing dancing. That was a very integral part of our so culture. It don't mean a
1: thing if it ain't got that swing.
0: Do dot, do dot, dude. I'm telling you.
1: But uh, you know, thank you so much for coming down here. Absolutely, bro. I hope we covered everything. You know, you you want kinda... to give a shout out, real yeah, quick. Go ahead.
0: Um, last thing, Jim Zbick the curator and historian of uh, the Southwest Florida military museum and um, library and library and all all of his uh, teammates. They, uh, they welcomed us with open arms today. Um, Also the district 13 commander of the American Legion of uh, Florida. I got to salute him with my VFW cap on. We had some joint American Legion and VFW merrymaking today. That was really cool. Um, It's a very good day.
1: Well, I, you know, I know you, you get excited about things and you like to have things planned out and you kind of sent me a
0: control a, freak. Yeah,
1: You, you yeah. sent me a list of topics you want to cover. And I looked at said, Well, that's not how I do this. I, yeah, I was I, like, I, I <laughs> sit down and I interview people and here we are 125 minutes into Sorry, it. Man. And so, you know, things go, it's just the way the show goes. Um, uh. I appreciate you coming down. And, I'd like to do uh, it again soon, man. Absolutely. We'll have you on for a future episode. And uh, thank you guys for so much for your continued support for the uh, What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. If you guys know any veterans, whether World War II, Vietnam, Korean War, please send us an email at info at com. And while you're at 2.com go ahead and click on that Patreon link and please sign up. It's a dollar a month. Sign up for the dollar month plan. If you want to do the seven fifty month plan, that's cool too. Uh, after the seven dollars and fifty cents a month plan, I will send you a free T-shirt. And there's also a three dollar plan. But you can support the show that way. And please go on YouTube, look up for the D- Digital Four Ten Network, subscribe, and click the bell. Oh but
0: yeah, I wear a size medium for the girls.
1: Medium. But thank you so much for all your all's continued support. I love it when I go out to events and someone says, hey, aren't you the guy from The Thing and The Stuff? Yes, that's me. Oh, that was
0: me saying that. <laughs> thank
1: you guys so much for your support, and uh, we look forward to another episode. You guys have a great weekend, and uh, we're going to wrap it up. Thank you so much, Mr.
0: Eric Hauser. Yeah, man, airborne, stay army. Train to lead, blah, blah, blah. Above the rest.
1: <laughs> <laughs> if anything you can say about Eric Hauser is that he wants his Information and his history that he shares with people to be true and to the point. And during the interview, he made a statement that Robert Adams was the able company first 508 commander and the editor of the 508 connection. But going home, he had a sneaking suspicion he had got that wrong, and so he wanted to get the word out and get it corrected. In actuality, Jonathan L. Adams was the commander of Company A1 508 during World War II. Second Lieutenant Jonathan Adams, who then became Major Adams after World War II, wrote the thesis on Able Company's running defense during the Battle of the Bulge. Robert Adams, a different member of the 508th PIR, was a contributing editor who worked with the Zig Burroughs to publish the first edition. And so Eric just wanted to make sure that we put the right information out there. If we're going to talk about history, we get it done properly and correctly. And so thank you guys so much for hanging out with us for another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. And if you haven't done so, please go to 2.com and click on the Patreon link and sign up for Patreon. It's a dollar a month. That dollar a month will go a long way over here. It'll help us uh, to continue to bring you great content and better equipment and keep the show going. So head over to 2.com Join the dollar tier the $3.50 a month tier or if you want a free t-shirt join the $7.50 a month tier and after your second month I will reach out to you and ask you to choose the t-shirt of your liking and send one your way. Thank you guys so much and we're looking forward to the next episode. This has been a Digital 410 production.